You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review. It is June 6th, Thursday. Very, very special day. June 6th of 2019. The 75th anniversary of the other day that will live on in infamy. Um, I cannot believe it. This all makes us seem older, just, you know, just in one sense. It was like yesterday, I remember celebrating the 50th anniversary of D-Day. And, you know, we were in elementary school. You didn't have the internet back then. They had these hotlines to call into. You'd hear these little historical blurbs. And gosh, you know, now the stuff that you can get online and, and the research you can do is unbelievable. Um, but it's, it's sad because I remember back with the 50th anniversary. So look, when you're young, everyone seems old, but it was, you know, just any more senior person either fought in the war, lived through it. Um, I remember my third, third grade teacher calling in the reading specialist, you know, just regular guy and say, Hey, come talk about the war. And, and he just unloaded to us talking about meatless Mondays, wheatless Wednesdays and what they did. And now it's just so it's so sad that even the youngest people who fought in the war have to be well into their 90s, and there's so precious few left. Um, gosh, I, I wish today would be a national holiday where kids would get off of school, although uh, a lot of them already are, but the ones that aren't already off of school, just because in many respects, June 6th, really embodies Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, and July 4th all wrapped into one. To me, it it was the culmination, the high watermark of America, of what George Washington envisioned with this common cause, how an entire citizenry, from its civilians to its military grunts, to its military officers, to its military and political leadership, to its cultural and media leaders. We're all together, all united. They all had a common cause. They understood what was at stake. They understood most importantly what America was and what they were seeking to preserve, why they were seeking to preserve it. They understood who the enemy was and why they were the enemy. They understood what needed to be done. And they set out to execute that plan with one rule of engagement given over to them from the commanding general of the Allied forces, General Eisenhower. We will accept nothing short of full victory. You know, I didn't have too many relatives that I know were in D-Day that I could confirm. So my... uh, my grandfather, my mother's father, he was a staff sergeant in the military. He actually interrogated Germans because he he knew some um, some German from his parents who came over from Austria. 
But, you know, in those days, they never really talked about it. It's amazing. The veterans back then, they never really talked about their experiences at all. Now they're getting some some of the last remaining ones to open up. In recent years, they've done documentaries. They, they talked about their experience. I don't think he was in the D-Day landings. I know his younger brother, Uncle Bill, he was... He was there on on DD. I don't know where exactly. Of course, my father's side was too old. They were, you know, that generation that was in between. They were too young to fight in World War One, too old for World War Two. But I know many of you have even even surviving relatives, and it's certainly something to cherish and and get their stories. Um, you know, obviously, when you're talking about D Day, the big enchilada is is Omaha Beach. I mean, that's that's everything. Obviously, you have the whole cluster of what went on with the 101st Airborne Division, the first major paratrooping uh, event of the war, ever really in warfare of that scale at least, that was an utter disaster, but there were some providential elements of it that worked out in the end, so they, they parachuted in that night behind enemy lines. Um, a lot of them did get killed. A lot of them died of accidents. But the providence was, it was such a disaster. They were so um, scattered all over the place. The Germans just couldn't figure out what the game plan was. They didn't know where to send their forces. So uh, that actually helped. But, you know, you look at Omaha Beach and, and you know, to this day, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, you know, if you look at overall intensity of fighting, we, we talk about this every year on VJ Day. Certainly what occurred even after the victory in Europe in some of these island battles, which were all amphib- amphibious invasions uh, in, in the Japanese theater are often overlooked. Iwo Jima and Okinawa were insane. It could be maybe even more insane than the fighting at Omaha Beach and, and D-Day in totality. But what, what there's nothing quite like is the actual amphibious invasion, the actual landing at Omaha Beach. You know, you, you look nowadays and we have AC-130 gunships that use infrared technology and also, and, and that's even old already, all sorts of stuff that they could scan every last human being in the caves, the mountaintops, every enemy position all the precision-guided stuff, all the intel assets we have, the unmanned combat aerial assets we have. Back then, they didn't have any of that. Qualitatively, they really were not any different than the Germans. In fact, the Germans had the fastest guns mounted on the high, high ground, going right into them. They didn't have anything. By that moment, you could say they did have a qualitative edge in terms of air supremacy, but it failed. they, they, They succeeded later on, but at the most critical moment, the time of landing that morning of D-Day, they had no idea what was awaiting them at Omaha Beach? That um, 29th Infantry Division that got you know the first few companies getting in there, Abel and Baker companies just got wiped out. 
the amalgamation of factors that that just everything that could go wrong went wrong. So the air assets, you know, just totally missed the mark because they didn't have precision guide stuff. They didn't fly along the parallel to the shoreline. They flew into it and they just missed it. It just all the bombs went inland. So none of the batteries were destroyed. To begin with, they didn't realize how many assets the Germans moved into Omaha. The worst sort of terrain to go up against, you can imagine. The fortifications they had, the obstacles they had on the beaches. Roughly 1,200 feet or so of exposed beach. That was a kill zone. They already had to delay the invasion because of the weather by two days. But even when they had no choice but to go through, the weather was awful. The sea was awful. Got them seasick, got them weakened at the worst moment. They were already drenched even before they were forced to disembark far out. Often in water that was already above their heads. Many of them drowned. The ones that came in and, and were mowed down by the machine gun fire in the water or drowned. Um, they also, a lot of them had a, a very sweet breakfast. Um, you know, they wanted to give them just a really good breakfast and bacon and all sorts of sweet stuff. It was the worst stuff imaginable um, to get seasick on. There's actually some cool stories with some of the Jewish soldiers who, you know, they, they only eat kosher, so they didn't wind up eating it and they, they didn't get a seasick. The guys, um, the Jewish soldiers that were in that 116th, uh, uh, regiment, infantry regiment of the 29th division. And, you know, so they, they didn't have the seasick problems, but everything that could go wrong. So you figure they'll count on the naval assets but because they didn't want to alert the Germans, it was it was a little bit too little, too late, too cautious. So there you had just the grunts, no technology, nothing but their their rifles, a couple of grenades, and so many of the rifles wound up being disabled from the sand and the water. They literally came with nothing. Worst asymmetrical a disadvantage on the terrain. But what did they have? What did they have? Well, I'll tell you what they didn't have. They didn't have transgender sensibility training. They didn't have social licentiousness. They didn't have a media and a political elite undermining them. They didn't have generals who are politicians and would expend them over political correctness. You had a nation that believed in a common cause. They had a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. They knew what they were fighting for. They knew what needed to be done. That entire sense of purpose in, of the nation and the nation's political and military leaders were imbued, almost transfused, in those grunts of those first infantry companies landing at Omaha and the subsequent ones that reinforced them and broke through, built on the sacrifice of the people that had to go first and almost all of them died. That's what won the day. 
And as much of a disaster as it was, and look, it was a disaster at Omaha in particular. Again, everything that could go wrong went wrong. They they were supposed to have tanks, not just to help them just distract the Germans and, and have some downrange fire while they were trying to land, but also some cover. You know, it gives you cover around the tanks. Those things drowned too. They couldn't get them ashore. The mechanical failures. Um, they only had like one or two tanks left. The seas were out of control. Just tossed them overboard. And then also, the sea um just made everyone land in the wrong places, scattered them out. Some of the troops were dropped off on sandbars. They didn't realize. So, you know, we, we all talk about the 1,200 um, feet of beach they had to cross. But some of them had to go through a couple hundred feet of water. So they were first on sandbars, so it was too shallow. But then they went to water that was often neck deep. Just a perfect amalgamation of weather, sea, intelligence failures, mechanical failures. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. But it still doesn't re- didn't reflect fundamentally on Eisenhower and Bradley's planning, fundamentally for the mission as a whole. And their understanding of victory at all costs and what victory looks like. That they did have. And that's why, as insane as it was for those eight or so hours till mid-afternoon from 6.30 in the morning, as perilous as it was, as, as, you know, Likely something around maybe 2,500 people died just at Omaha. Or roughly, some say 2,500 total at all the beaches, with 80% of them being at Omaha. Countless thousands severely wounded. At the end of the day, it might have been the longest day, but it was just a day. By the afternoon, at some point with the bravery of people like General Norman Coda, Colonel George Taylor, those famous lines in the, in the, in the movie, um, The longest, uh, longest Day, where the officers led, those in particular, were being killed on the beaches, let us go inland and be killed. Rangers lead the way. Fifth Ranger Battalion. Couple of those guys that led the way. Many died. Many are buried at the cemetery in Normandy. Some survived and broke through. And once they broke through and had an even playing field, even though the German soldiers were much fresher, And frankly, almost all of them, more combat experience. 
I mean, remember the 29th division there, they were newbies. And Eisenhower designed it that way because he wanted people who were ignorant of the horrors of combat. So they would just plow right through because that, that was the only thing you could do. But once they, once they got it late afternoon, even Omaha, even the worst speech, even with all the failures, they overran the Germans. They secured a mile of the beaches. And by the end of that day, they were building bridges and had a secure beach to bring in 150,000 or so Allied troops. Their tanks and all their equipment start burying their dead and move on. And, 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 it, and it, you know, within, what is it, 10 months, no more than 10 months, there were ups and downs. Every battle was tough. Germans would fight to the, to the last man often, like, just like the Japanese. But after 10 months, an entire continent was freed. The greatest, most visceral war machine was defeated. And an entire world was saved from really what would have been the end of the world. You know, mixing the Germans with the Japanese alliance not just the misery and suffering of the rest of the world, but even America could not have stood out. You know, between the two, they would have gotten us in our homeland eventually. Everyone knew that. Everyone understood the purpose. And they got what was done, done. Sure, sure, we expended a lot of soldiers, but they weren't expendables. It was an understanding that especially given the technology of the time, that was the best we can do. And everyone who did die, everyone could point to the cliff, the, the breaches in those cliffs of Omaha that were taken, and therefore the areas behind that in the wine country that was taken and the positions that were secured and a world that were, was saved. That was the result of the values, not the technology. We didn't have the technology. The values that we had on display back then. And in fact, I mean, the irony is it was so successful in a macro sense that it took a long time and, and for a lot of people many years to even know what happened at Omaha. It's the longest day. I mean, it seemed like it, it, was, it was just they were butchered but it was just about eight hours and they got it. You know, it, it, back then it took several days just for the dispatches to get out and get through the censors of the war department and, in, in, uh, and in, in the commanders in London. So people didn't even know the degree of sacrifice you know, they thought they landed, they bombed them into submission, they got in, they got on there. No one could imagine the obstacles those men went through at Omaha Beach. That is something that will always live on in infamy. As the greatest displays of courage and sacrifice in human history. And the greatest shining lights of American spirit. 
you know, you contrast the longest day to the longest war. We're 18 years in Afghanistan. We're countless years close to that, still somewhat in Iraq. Several years into Syria and Niger and Somalia and Libya. There's no understanding of, A, what is America? What are we preserving? What's our character? Then there's no understanding of who is our enemy. What theaters are, is it appropriate to fight in? What theaters are our enemies fighting each other and have nothing to do with us? What are our national interests at stake? And then once we put our men in battle, to have that one rule of engagement, nothing short of full victory. Instead, we send them to the wrong theaters for the wrong reasons. And despite this insane technology that's just like unbelievable. I mean, we've spent, you know, you might say, look, Daniel, yeah, you're right. We did lose, what is it? Um, I'm forgetting. I should know this. Six and a half thousand or so troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, but tens of thousands really injured. We say, all right, well, we had that. Okay, but but that's over a course of, of two decades. This was just in a couple hours at Omaha Beach. But the difference is, see, we spent trillions of dollars on this insane technology. So I'm sorry, but that though, that level of casualty is unacceptable for what we have. We have this technology where we don't have to get up front and put our guys in a picket's charge. That's precisely the reason we have it. And yet all we do is prosecute our, we send our troops over to referee Islamic civil wars, but send them in the most dangerous combat zones of those civil wars to engage in nation building and social work to die for other people, not for America, actually make things worse. Worst rules of engagement. Then we prosecute our people there. Then we bring in tens of thousands of migrants from these countries that endanger us. And then while we haphazardly storm the mountains of the Hindu Kush and Helmand province, and God knows what else in Africa and Syria. We allow the most vicious, brutal, evil cartels to storm our beach at the Rio Grande River. And we do nothing about it but send a couple thousand troops unarmed as sitting ducks to get attacked by them and do nothing about it. And what about character? We have a character, a country of the homosexual agenda, a country that's turned away from God, a country that doesn't believe in itself, a country that rather than e pubilis unum, celebrating from many there is one, celebrating our unity, we celebrate our balkanization to the point where there is no America. You know, you had boys 
going in there, young men, some were originally of British or Scottish heritage, some were Irish, some were, some were German, Italian, Polish, Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish. But they all had that common cause. I said this yesterday. Hitler envisioned America as a joke of a balkanized nation. But, you know, his view of balkanization wasn't true. That's not what it was. That's what we've become now. So now, even with technology that is by a factor of trillions superior and gives a qualitative edge by a factor of a trillion over everything we've been fighting. Because we're not fighting the Russians or the Chinese yet. It's these mud hut munchkins or what we should be fighting in the cartels, but not. We could crush them like bugs without losing almost anyone. And we have an obligation to do that when it affects us. But yet we we prosecute anyone for doing their job. You want to talk about values of the men back then. Um, values. You know, we have a we have a Navy SEAL commander who's facing life in prison without parole for killing an ISIS guy. It's almost as if the only purpose, only sense of purpose we have is to build, nation build for others, put our soldiers through the necks, meat grinders of competing civil wars just to bring in migrants from both sides and prosecute our own soldiers. But it wasn't like that back then. It wasn't like that. You know, nowadays, there's a lot of revisionists who are trying to smear some of our soldiers. In recent years, it's been this fad to bring up the Dachau liberation reprisals. The details are still unclear to what extent, but to some extent, when our soldiers came in, you know, in April 1945 to the Dachau camp, so, you know, no one knew what concentration camps were like. They knew their Nazis were doing something to people. But of course, the New York Times infamously buried that. They knew what was going on and buried it. So a lot of people didn't know what was happening, didn't know the extent. And they came in and they saw these rail cars um, lined up with hundreds of rotted bodies. Stench was beyond belief. There were a couple of live people, I think, among them. And they saw the condition of the living prisoners. This was the um, 45th Infantry Division commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Felix Sparks. They saw uh, crushed skulls.
And then in addition, it's not like initially there was a full surrender of the camp. The soldiers were fired upon by these you know people in these guard towers. They found the gas chambers, the coal-fired crematoriums, the naked bodies piled up from floor to ceiling. They had a sense of the just laws of war, these boys. These boys of the 157th Infantry Regiment, 45th Division, 3rd Battalion, they came in there and they lined up some of these SS guards against a wall and they machine gunned them. And all these revisionists nowadays are calling it the darkest moments of the war. But I'll tell you, they are among the brightest moments of the war. It's those same values where where um you know they think nowadays they are more moral than our grandparents generation war. It's that value that gets our soldiers killed for nothing and doesn't do any good to anyone and in fact you know more people than ever die from all sides because we refuse to achieve the fullest and swiftest vi- victory but of course only do so in a place where victory is defined. It's that same morality that's like, oh, it was terrible what they did. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. And um, you know, eventually they did order some sort of just review of it. And of course it was reviewed by none other than general Patton. And you could imagine general Patton wasn't exactly, uh, going to deal with this. Have you ever thought what would generals Eisenhower Patton Norman Coda, what would they do with our border? Well, you know, I don't think we need to imagine what they would do with our border. I don't think we need to imagine at all. Eisenhower became president, and he deported hundreds of thousands without any questions, without any litigation. He would not tolerate that. And and you can't divide the two. You know, everyone, even even you know, most people who aren't like wildly leftist will celebrate Eisenhower on a day like today. But let me tell you, the same values behind him fighting Nazism is the same values that he had in Operation Wetback. Because the understanding was that America is good. And America is, is exceptional. It is our country, and it needs to exist in its original values and capacity. Not certainly for its own people, that's the most important thing, but really as a light to everyone. That a weak America, 
an overrun America that's fundamentally transformed, that doesn't have sovereignty and security, is no good for anybody. That we have to be strong. And the best way to protect, first and foremost, America and our troops and our assets and our agents, like HSI agent Victor Avila, we're going to have him on for part two tomorrow, is to worry about their lives first. And that no matter what, no matter what, we can only do what is just. We can't do what is pure good. Deuteronomy is called the book of justice. It references in many verses there, justice and good. Roughly translated from the old Hebrew words. Good is for God. Only God can work out. Everyone gets perfectly their share. We can't do 100-0. There's going to be collateral damage. But the just laws of war dictate, and we always understood that, was that when we have a cause that's just, that we all agree we're going to war, then you got to protect your guys first. You got to win with full force. And as swiftly as possible, that is the best way to minimize the casualties, but you will have them. So the best way is to minimize them. And the ones that you have, guess what? They are on the account of your enemy. They're not your fault. It was understood certainly in the Japanese front with the burning down of Tokyo and what they had to do on those islands. And it was understood in the air bombings in Germany. Now, again, the revisionists aren't only screwing us now, they're going back and, you know, talking down our uh, tactics in World War II now. But they'll never offer you an alternative vision of how we would have saved the world. It's actually that mindset that is plaguing liberalism, and you didn't have that liberalism. Ironically, I mean, we're talking about FDR was the man who prosecuted this. He's the father of modern fiscal liberalism. But that's the thing. We didn't have a country like that. We had a country. It's not that all all was, you know, united. We had the most visceral political fights dating back to the election of 1800 with Jefferson and, and, and Adams. But that's the thing. They were so visceral over the few things they disagreed over because there there were only a few things. We all believed a man was a man and a woman was a woman. We all believed in good and evil. We all believed in America first. With certain interests and industries within America, you know, you always had politics. We'd fight over. There was never under any understanding that we're going to place the interest of foreign countries and foreign nationals and certainly illegal invaders over us. And that's why I cannot ignore the state of being on June 6, 2019, at the beaches of the Rio Grande River when we celebrate the victory at the beaches in Normandy 75 years ago on this day. It's we've lost that sense. But here's what I want to say. 
I don't want to talk down. I don't want to talk down. Everyone in this generation. Look, I'm very down on this generation. Gosh, some days I wish to God I had lived um, in that time where I wouldn't have to, to see this stuff. But you know, I, I meet people in the audience and, and, and I think we all know this. We're not the only crazy ones. There are still people, some might be able to articulate it better than others, but deep down, they know and understand these values and still believe in them. We do have people, even in this generation, serving in our military. You know, I, I, like I said, I don't want to talk down like, oh, those, those were, you know, they don't make men like that anymore. These men of Omaha Beach that we now see, um, you know, parachuting at 97 years old. As much as I talk down this generation, I'll tell you, it's not that we don't have that spirit anymore. You look at some of these men that people in this audience, some of your family, friends, relatives that went through the second battle of Fallujah, all these fights in the Helmand province in, in Afghanistan, crazy, crazy stories. The resilience of those at um, Mogadishu in 93. You, don't, you, don't, you just don't have this, you know, the full amphibious invasion like that and just the full scale number of people, but the people on an individual and a small unit level, I, I would argue that they were confronted with challenges on par with Omaha Beach and, and, and persevered. It's not that we don't have that anymore, but the difference is we don't have the leadership. We have a balkanized country and therefore a political and military leadership, and that's really the key, that is broken beyond belief, that is reduced to rubble, that is more worried about expending their soldiers on the altar of political correctness than articulating a mission. As I quoted in my article today, Oliver Wendell Holmes in his famous 1884 Memorial Day speech said that we celebrate on Memorial Day and solemnly reaffirm from year to year a national act of enthusiasm and faith. He said it was vital. Why? Because, quote, to act with enthusiasm and faith is the condition of acting greatly and to fight out a war, you must believe something and want something with all your might. That is the difference right there. We still have people willing to do that if you give them the mission. But if you give them a crappy mission, then where does it go? I want to be very clear. I'm not talking down those people. I believe is on par with Omaha Beach. But Fallujah as a mission is is. Not on par. It's nonsense. Why do we send them there? Why do we send them there? And then what we do with them there? That's the problem. You know, I would have loved to have a veteran on the show from, from the war. You know, and, and, and sound a little bit more of an upbeat note. But I'm a big disciple 
of Calvin Coolidge. And in his 1927 Memorial Day speech, I quote this all the time, he said that reverence for the dead should not be divorced from respect for the living. You always got to bring it back to the here and now. The way to honor their sacrifice is by championing their legacy in the here and now. And that's what he talked about. How you have to honor today's soldiers. And the way to honor today's soldiers is giving them generals and leaders like we had back then, with the values we had back then, with the sense of defined mission that we had back then, with the rules of engagement we had back then, but actually mixed with the superior, amazing technology, which would put them in even better shape. The only thing worse than placing our soldiers in harm's way is putting them there without a defined mission, without a clear picture of victory, without an understanding of what and why we are fighting, and with rules of engagement that don't accept, that that don't abide by the adage of accepting nothing less than full victory. You send out our soldiers to deal with the cartels and create a buffer zone not to, to build Mexico, not no, just very clearly, we will do what it takes to ensure that not an inch of our territory is unsecure. I mean, is that too much to ask? We're not disagreeing over Sunnis and Shias and what we should do. That not an inch of our territory should be unsecure by foreign hostiles. that no American should be unsafe by foreign hostiles on our soil. Obviously, you have domestic tranquility, which is an issue, but that's not an issue of the military. But this is an issue for the military. Imagine what it would do for the morale of our soldiers, the recruitment of our soldiers, the sense of mission, if rather than having them die for nothing in these far-off places where we can't understand, unlike at the beaches of Normandy, which were far off, but we did understand what it was. We had them fighting for the ranchers in Arizona and the cities in Texas. But they would also understand, because we'd have a political leadership apprising them of, that it's not just the border. It's the thousands upon thousands of murderers and rapists and sex offenders and cartel smugglers that are taking over our nation in all 50 states, that you're going to be preventing that from coming in. You're going to be preserving our way of life. Imagine what the military would look like then. And again, there's something that our military soldiers today have even over the great generation, the greatest generation. While some of them did volunteer, did sign up. The overwhelming majority were conscripted. This is an all-volunteer volunteer military. So, um, there you go. That's the lesson today. Had a channel that sense of purpose, that belief in America, 
that understanding rules of morality and just warfare, understanding why our government exists, if we did that, we have more tools to succeed than even back then. And we have people willing to carry that out. That's the big difference nowadays. It's all at an elite leadership level. That's what's changed. They don't make them like Patton and Eisenhower. Or they might make them, but you can't get to those positions. He'll retire as a major because he get frustrated. That's the big issue. That's the lesson we need to take out today. Now look, we already irrevocably have a balkanized country between irresponsible illegal immigration to a certain extent legal immigration with the education system, with the values. We have parts of our country that that are irrevocably broken. But at least among those of us that claim to value this stuff, we need to plow forward with an understanding that we're going to accept nothing less than full victory. At least among us, we need to stop compromising. We need to give over a full picture, at least in the political battleground. Because that's where everything's fought nowadays. You don't have conventional warfare like that. I mean, we might at some point with China if we continue to be this weak and invited. But now it's primarily, it's, it's, it's too subtle. It's a subtle civilization warfare. It's a mix of a little bit of hostility, lawfare, political warfare, population transfer, m- Media warfare, that's what it is. So anyway, that's my piece for today. Just to honor this this day, the people fought. And just understanding a full full perspective on on the degree of sacrifice. I mean, again, you, you can imagine every step of it. We have Instant GPS and satellite tracking. I mean, they didn't have any of this stuff. Every last thing had to be done the old-fashioned way, the hard way. But there's nothing that could ever compensate for intrepid values. Nothing could compensate for that. We could spend outspend the world by trillions on military technology and, and resources. But you're always going to need the fighting men with that intrepid spirit. But that's also worthless if you don't have leaders unleashing and guiding them. channel those values to unconditional victory. So, um, 
Anyway, we spent a lot of time on this. Obviously, I wanted to do a special show today. I wish we could have had a a guest, but we are going to have Victor Avila back tomorrow to discuss the Mexican Benghazi that he went through before and after. Um, You know, just real briefly, we're waiting back, obviously, to see what Trump's next move is with the Mexican tariffs. And hopefully he's going to channel that towards more leverage to actually do a shut off of immigration at the border. And, um, you know, again, getting back to our sense of purpose, how it's not just in terms of military tactics and clarity of mission, but you have to believe in yourself as America. And I'm going to have an article out today just embellishing a little bit not embellishing really, but adding to um, last week's show on asylum not being a suicide pact, meaning even if you believe asylum law dictates that and that you somehow have to let them in and you would somehow have to release them, which of course law says you can't release them. If you understood what America is, you can never weigh the whole of the law and violate a hundred other laws to the detriment of Americans in order to fulfill one to the gates of hell for foreign invaders. You would understand that. And I want to end off with one final point tying in a little bit of border news to the theme we're talking about today in honor of D-Day, you know, you you always have to view and judge historical figures, a country's values at large in the times that they lived in. And a lot of people are very confused because on the one hand, as conservatives, certainly we're all into like, you know, the previous generations were better. Their values, traditional values, but then, you know, there's blights on history. There are things that are wrong. And, you know, there's there's often reasons for them. Because the enlightenment is a real thing. Progressivism is not. Enlightenment is real, that from learned experiences, you improve on certain things. So, you know, there's, there's obviously talk about, you know, at that time, you had... Um, the internment of the Japanese. Now, the point to remember about that is that you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. The value of the time that we should continue today is the following, that American security comes first, that our government, that first and foremost, we are going to make sure nothing threatens our homeland. That is sacred. You're not going to mess with it. Americans will never suffer on account of foreign nationals. Now, that's an ironclad value. Now, then you could say, given the values, then they, they took it too far. Again, you know, the Enlightenment starting in the 1700s, 1800s, completing in the 1900s, you know, people over time until it changed, they were more suspicious of other people and sometimes to the point where it it wasn't justified. But what we have going on nowadays is where we just let our country get overrun. We lost that. The value behind it 
not that led to that specific decision, but the general value of American sovereignty and security comes first is a good one and a true one. There's two stories I want to share with you, their significance, before we uh, wrap it up. Let's see where this is. The The Gulf Cartel, a Gulf Cartel member, wrote a letter to President Trump and publicized it. It's picked up on Spanish language media. Um, I saw it at Borderland Beat. This is borderlandbeat.com. Good website that covers the cartel stuff. And it was a very weird letter. It's what we call a snitch letter. He wrote a letter. President Trump, your law is against the illegal migrants, but your citizen governor, Cabeza de Vaca, as a group of state police officers charging us for each Cuban, Venezuelan, Brazilian, Chinese, and Arab from all over the world for passing through our plazas in Tamaulipas. This is a translation from Spanish. Mainly in our Ribereña. Every, everyone has different prices depending on what country they originated from, as do our assassins have a fee to pay if they get caught. We the cartels are not your enemies. We pay to live. Operative Group Cartel del Golfo, Comandante Primito. What exactly the guy is trying to do, I don't know, but here's what he is revealing, and here's why it's important. This guy that he's outing to the American government as either working with them to get in on smuggling in special interest aliens and getting you know, money out of it or working with a rival cartel that hurts the Gulf. Why Gulf is doing this, I don't know, but this is important. Cabeza de Vaca. So he is the governor of Mexico, of of, um, the Mexican state of Tamaulipas. Right, so Tamaulipas is the, uh, the Mexican state. That's the region that's just below, let's say, Rio Grande City, um, you know, I mean, it, it hugs the coast, but as Reynosa, it's um, but but then there's like a part that borders America. It's very important because um, the part that borders Texas goes all the way from Brownsville to Laredo. So the entire Rio Grande Valley and farther north already is bordered by Tamaulipas. It's really the most important state at this point with the migration in Mexico, Tamaulipas. And that's controlled by the Gulf Cartel, but there's certain areas where CDN is is fighting for control. CDN, um, for those of you who know, is Cartel de Nostre, by the way, it's the it's the offshoot of the Zetas, right? The Zetas, the cartel that attacked um Avila, you know, that he spoke about on the show earlier this week. We'll have him on tomorrow. So anyway, this guy lives in McAllen. And there's a whole trend of this, of Mexican noblemen, for lack of a better term, politicos, even governors. They live in our country and they become dual citizens. We allow this. And they're dirty as anything. They're engaged in criminal conspiracies across our border. And we don't do anything about it. We allow this stuff. We bring this stuff in. The leadership of corrupt governments 
That's how much we don't care about our sovereignty. You say, why am I believing a cartel? It's usually pretty credible if they're doing this. It either means that this governor originally was working with the Gulf cartel in on the migration and they're ticked off at him for whatever reason, siphoning off money from them. Or it could be maybe he's working for CDN and they're trying to out him. Now, obviously, it doesn't, you know, it shouldn't take away pressure from them, but the point is we we don't vet anyone. We don't have this principle that we will only have people in this country that love America. It was an obvious principle from our founding. We believe in our enemies, we don't believe in ourselves. You know, tied into that, another story that's going to make you really mad is El Chapo. El Chapo's mother was given a visa. Okay? El Chapo's mother says U.S. approved visa to visit drug lord. This is June 1st from uh, ABC News. The mother of convicted drug kingpin, Jonquin El Chapo Guzman, said Saturday that the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City granted her a visa so she can visit her son in prison. Sitting in a wheelchair in front of the embassy, Consuelo Loera said she and, and two daughters were both approved Saturday for visas to travel to the United States. Thank God the U.S. Embassy gave me permission. Um... Let's see if there's anything else worthy of bringing out here. I'm pressed for time here. Um, let's just leave it at that. So he, here's the thing. Again, we don't give a damn about anyone. Remember Victor Avila said on Wednesday that he couldn't even get his family wanted to come to the trial. You know, the people convicting the people that almost killed him and killed his partner. And yet they flew in cartel members' families the Zetas families to be with, with the accused at the trial. So it's a similar thing here. Really? We're, we're going to give El Chapo's parent. I mean, I don't care if they're with the cartels or they're as innocent as mother Teresa. I don't know who they are or aren't, but are you kidding me? Our government believes in everything except for the protection, defense, and championing of patriotic Americans of all stripes. That, my friends, is what has changed and what has changed dramatically since the days of Omaha Beach, World War II. You know, um, 20 years after D-Day... Shortly before he died, Eisenhower went back for the 20th anniversary. He visited Normandy, like you know President Trump's doing today, and uh, you know many other presidents have done at some point. Reagan gave his famous uh, speech uh, about Pontu Hawk, the Rangers, 40 years afterwards. But when he was there, as he was viewing the cemetery. 
He said, I devoutly hope that we will never again have to see such scenes as these. I think and hope and pray that humanity will learn more than we had learned up to that time. But these people gave us a chance and they bought time for us so that we can do better than we have before. They bought time. These are the people that bought time. They gave us the opportunity. We all have to ask ourselves, who is going to buy us the time to stop the hemorrhaging, to give us this chance that we could actually secure our sovereignty, our way of life. And of course, the best way to secure peace is by having a strong, sovereign, unvarnished, defended America that's not rotted out by enemies within and without. These are the values we need to take with us in our political fight. I certainly don't want to compare political fights to real fights. I probably would have been one of those guys like in the back of the boats trying to get out last behind someone's back, hiding behind something. I could never do that. But at least as it relates to politics, I I, I can't fathom when I speak to some of these people, whether they're elected Republicans or so-called conservatives or media figures, they use war analogies often. It's like, oh, we're going to get mowed down. Oh, this is like, this is like, you know, suicide. I mean, oh, I can't do that. That's not winnable. Really? I mean, we still got freedom of speech in this country. Really? You can't hold the line on basic values, social security, sovereignty. That much I can commit to you. At least the keyboard, keyboard warrior I am. And I'm not going to back down. Even if others won't. But I need your support. I need your engagement. Like I said, we're going to look for ways to take this show to the next level. I hope this was somewhat meaningful to you today. Again, I, I really hope one of, one of my goals is to get a World War II veteran on the show someday. If you know of anyone who would love to come on, relative, friend, or just know of anyone, let me know. Um... I'd love to see, but tomorrow we're going to have a very meaningful show on Friday with Victor Avila. I'm going to be out on Monday. A lot more going on this week. I missed a lot of important things, but we're going to try to get to them in our columns. Never miss them at conservativereview.com. God bless y'all. God bless our armed forces, our police officers, our border agents, our ICE agents, and may God forever bless the memory of those who fought and died at Normandy. Thank you very much.